Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. When I think of smart, insightful commentary, one of the first names that comes to mind is E.J. Dion. He's a regular on NPR, MSNBC, and PBS, an opinion journalist for The Washington Post, a former staffer for The New York Times, and a lecturer at Georgetown and Harvard. His new book, Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country, is on bookstore shelves now, and we're so glad to have him on the show. Hi, everybody. Let me start by saying the obvious. These aren't normal times. Democrats hoping to defeat Trump don't seem to be helping themselves with in-house squabbles threatening to expose a party divided. Look, I think at the end of the day, the vast majority of voters are going to come and support Joe Biden. And if they don't, shame on them. The term centrist has come to bother me because in the middle of what? In the center of what? Anyway, judging from the, the size of, uh, of the crowd here, many of you must already know... <laughs> That EJ is really, uh, really worth listening to. I'm EJ Dion, and I think progressives and moderates cannot continue to feud while America burns under Trump. Sorry, not sorry. So I want to get into the topic of the Democratic Party unity. But before I do that, I like to ask the people I interview who work in news outlets what it's been like for journalists in this field when the president of the United States seems desperate to undermine the free press at every single turn. Well, first, thanks so much for having me on. It's really great to be with you. And I've said for the last three plus years that I am really grateful that I am in opinion journalism at this moment. Because if you are a columnist or in some other form of opinion journalism, you can be as direct as you want to be about a lot of things, including the ways in which Donald Trump undermines democracy, about the ways in which he is going after the free press, about his authoritarian tendencies. And so from my particular standpoint, I just felt it was a blessing in this period to be able to have an opportunity to raise my voice along with those of a whole lot of other people to say, this is really a catastrophe for our democratic republic. I think my colleagues, and back in the olden days, I was an old-fashioned journalist under the strictures that you're not supposed to reflect your opinions in your reporting. And I really respect those strictures because I think they're important to people getting straight information to make judgments on. I think my colleagues have struggled as best they could to convey as clearly as possible where the president is, say, contradicting himself within the course of the same interview, where he is lying outright. I think one really indicative story about the media is when Trump first took over, there was a reluctance to use the word lie. And there was a whole conversation. The New York Times editors spoke about how, well, to use the word lie, you have to know that someone is intentionally lying. We got past that because the evidence was overwhelming 
that the president wasn't just misleading or making a mistake. He was lying because he'd be corrected and he'd continue to lie. So I think the press has struggled toward a tougher standard. But I had a column the other day where I said, after the president of the United States suggests the possibility that injecting a disinfectant might be a way at the virus, the media really have to signal that this is very different. They cannot give this president any of the deference they gave other presidents. This is not a normal presidency. And then, you know, you hope that the adults in the room stand up and say something truthful and honest. And yet... Dr. Burks came on two days later and said, you know what, I just wish that this would leave the news cycle. It's like, well, no, we have to undo the damage that he did from that one sentence. So it's not going to just go away. And you're supposed to be the grown up in the room. That's the thing that is so frustrating for me. It's like, I get it. I get all of it. I get the parts of the country felt like they weren't being heard or seen. And they felt like the two-party duopoly was not helping them at all. I get it. And they were struggling and they're still struggling. What I don't understand is how the adults in the room are not fixing the constant breakage and carnage that this man is leaving behind and instead just allowing him to do it in a way where we're totally normalizing it. And it's outrageous. It's just absolutely outrageous. And the fact that like that that we're even entertaining the idea of McConnell saying, you know what, we're just going to let states file bankruptcy. And there's not an adult in the room going, no, actually, the states that you want to be able to file bankruptcy are actually donor states. So maybe you don't want to go there considering it's like California, New York. It's it's, it's maybe you don't want to go. There. Where are the adults in the room? Well, I think there are several issues here. One is where are the adults in the Republican Party? And one of the yes. themes in my book is the reason why there is a natural alliance now between moderates and progressives is because all of those folks who really were genuinely moderate Republicans, heck, I'm old enough to remember when there were liberal Republicans who embraced that term, but they left a long time ago. But anyone in the electorate who is a moderate Republican looks at this party and says, even before Trump, it had radicalized. If you looked at the obstruction against President Obama, if you looked at how soft they were on Trump's birtherism. In your view, was it the rise of the Tea Party? Since Donald Trump announced his presidential candidacy in June of 2015, his unprecedented rise has shocked most of the political world. Despite members of the Republican establishment predicting the collapse of his campaign, he has so far pulled ahead of any other candidate. This support points to a split within the Republican Party and a lack of cohesion. So why is the Republican Party so fractured? Well, today there's a clear divide between both ideology and representation within the Republican Party. On one side are established moderate career politicians. Their primary focus over the past few decades has been on limited government, a strong national defense, and the traditional family. However, in recent years, a huge portion of the Republican base has complained that they do not feel accurately represented by who they call Washington insiders. 
This space is more predominantly focused on social issues like gay marriage and abortion, as well as religious rights. Abortion is a greater evil than taxes or slavery. But if we do not repent, will we not be judged? Have we already not been born? 9-11 was our warning. Yes, I think the Tea Party reflected a trend that really, I mean, I trace it all the way back to Ronald Reagan when he said, that one of the biggest lies in the world is I'm here from the federal government and I'm here to help you. And the idea of denigrating the role of the federal government, which gave us, by the way, Medicare, Social Security, national parks, the GI Bill, a whole lot of stuff that helped Americans, average Americans, to say all of that was not helpful. I think he sort of set off a process all the way back then And then I think the Tea Party did represent sort of another stage of that. And I think you saw that even before in the opposition to the immigration bill. I didn't agree with George W. Bush on very much, but he did want to reform the immigration laws in a reasonable way. And that bill was blocked by right wing Republicans led by Jeff Sessions, who, by the way, famously said that the opponents of the bill tried to delay it. So Rush Limbaugh would have time to explain to the American people what's in it. That's back during the Bush years. And I think Trump was not somebody imposed on the Republican Party, as a lot of people want to say. I think he was an illogical line on the path that the Republican Party had been pursuing. So I think we're missing adults we hoped would be there in the Republican Party. On the odd day, Mitt Romney speaks out, and there are a few others, but not very many. And then I think the other thing is, and George Packer had a powerful piece on this in The New Yorker this week, that Trump has really managed to wreck our governing structure. And whenever there were people in the administration who tried to stand up to him, he pushed them out or he attacked them as in people in the CIA and the FBI. He has just ripped apart the guardrails as he's gone along. And so I think that you you look at Joe Biden's campaign from beginning to end. In some ways, I think the core argument he made the day he announced is probably the best argument for his campaign is when he said four years of Donald Trump can be seen as an aberration But eight years of Donald Trump will change our republic fundamentally. I don't care whether you're a Biden person or a Bernie person or a Warren person. I think that sentence is absolutely right. Yeah, I agree with that as well. And I have one more question before I really want to dive into your book because I thought it was really fascinating. But I have one more question about the news and the news cycle, just because I woke up this morning kind of obsessing over this idea that even the 24-hour news cycle and those that we trust to give us our news, even that on television feels like a visual op-ed, right? It doesn't feel like straight news. And all the networks have these, you know, it's not just Fox News that has people that just talk about their opinions of the news. Don Lemon is very much like that. Rachel Maddow is very much like that. Do you think that that type of news needs to be labeled as opinion news rather than the straight news? Maybe this is naive of me, but I think that consumers of news have a sense of what they're getting. I mean, on balance, I think labeling things in the name of transparency is always a good idea. But I think when people turn on Fox News, 
they pretty much know what they're going to get. And I think that's true of the cable networks. One of the fascinating things in terms of media about this period is that there's been a mini revival of the old evening news, the facts shows on the networks. The local news. Well, local news, but also back in the day, it was Walter Cronkite. And now we have the three network evening news shows. We've all seen a bump. The schedules accord better with people's schedules because a lot of people are home instead of commuting. But B, because they can't be a fairly good source of fairly direct, non-opinionated information. The other thing is it's tricky because with all of this stuff coming at you, people are looking for not only takes on the news, but there's a very interesting book by a professor called Mitch Stevens called Beyond News. And he argues for what he calls wisdom journalism. Now, as somebody Mm. who's been in journalism for a long time, I always worry about whether we can ever claim wisdom. But I think his point is that people are looking for not a biased take, but a reasonable explanation of what is going on and a sense of the story behind the story so they can make sense of it. And that's where it gets tricky between analysis and opinion. I think a world where all of those exist is a good thing. What's not a good thing is when the facts themselves are not adhered to, when people make up facts, when people think that if you're expressing opinion, your opinion doesn't really have to be fact-based. No, we should hold every kind of journalist, whether they're an opinion journalist or a good old-fashioned straight news reporter to the same standard when it comes to fact. And that's where I think the line of criticism has to come. It's so interesting to see how it has evolved. And I have to tell you, I have a lot of friends that have said to me, I can't watch the 24-hour news cycle anymore. So what I do is I just go home and I watch the local news. And I feel like it's, you know, it's more it's more pinpointed to my community. It tells me the truth and just the facts. And there's a lot of good news happening that they deliver. So it's just a very interesting time. And I think like everything else, COVID-19 has shown us where we need to do better. If I can be very biased in favor of work I have done for a long time, there is still the newspaper, (laughs) which is still available uh, to people online. And by the way, I would put in a plug for local newspapers that are really suffering in this. But I mean, there are still an awful lot of consumers of what used to be called newspapers. Now they are consuming them online. But those forms of journalism allow you to sit back, absorb, and make judgments in ways that I think are still useful. And fortunately, a lot of people out there still seem to find them useful. I could not agree with you more. And there is no greater pleasure than having your coffee in the morning and sitting down with a newspaper. And it's something my husband and I do, even though we have access to it online, but we force ourselves to do it because we want our kids to grow up seeing that that is part of your daily absorption of information and facts and what's going on. I really agree. I always tell people, and the good thing about the paper newspaper is you can't spill your coffee on your computer, but you can on your paper (laughs) newspaper. (laughs) Let's get into your new book, Code Red. 
how progressives and moderates can unite to save our country. Boy, do we need that. You write that Trump has, and I thought this was such an interesting phrase, harness the power of negative thinking. What do you mean by that? And what effect do you think that that has on voters? Well, what I think is that conservatives, going back to Reagan, have harnessed the power of negative thinking and that moderates and progressives need to learn some lessons from that. That Reagan used what he opposed, big government, taxes, Soviet communism, to develop his agenda for change, which involves small government, lower taxes, and a forceful foreign policy. And in doing that, he really redefined our politics and his ideas exercised power for three generations. We've had a huge impact, but the laws are so bad. The immigration laws are such a disgrace. We're getting them changed, but we have to get more Republicans. We have to get. I think Trump should uh, clarify for moderates and progressives alike what they abhor, you know, racial and ethnic intolerance and disdain for democratic values, corruption, married to corporate dominance and the pursuit of a brutally divisive politics as a substitute for problem solving. And that means that what we agree on, it comes out of our critique of what we oppose, an open society and democracy, political reform, limits on corporate power, steps against rising inequality. And so negative thinking is something the right has harnessed for years. Negative thinking, if used properly, tells us what we are for by defining very clearly for us what we are against. So I think negative thinking can be useful, provided we make that turn toward the goals we have that come out of it. Really interesting. And I wonder how much of that is just the way he has always functioned, or if he, and maybe that's the appeal to the rest of the GOP, or if it's something that they've taken advantage of because he just does it really well. When I read it, I thought about, I had that one friend in my early 20s that literally was like the dark cloud, that everything that came out of her mouth was negative. And I was so attracted to that in a way as a friend because I had always been taught to be so optimistic and cheery and, you know, very happy all the time. You know, I started work when I was seven, so I really didn't have a a choice. I had to be a nice, happy child. And so I'm wondering if a little bit of that is just this psychological, you know, misery loves company thing where we have for so long lived in this ideal of the American dream and this sort of happy-go-lucky, even when it wasn't true, to look at something so positively as America. And then this guy came along and was like, nope, you know what? <clears throat> I'm just going to negative think about everything. Here's, here's what I don't believe in. And everyone went, oh, yeah, that's nice. You know, because there is this psychological effect that just misery loves company. Well, one thing I always like to point out to people is Trump did not win the popular vote. And that's not just about making us who didn't vote for him feel better. He just did not speak for the majority of the country. He got 46 percent of the vote. And a chunk of that 46 percent, probably about nine percent of it, were really people who didn't particularly like Trump. But for whatever reason, I didn't agree with them, but for whatever reason, they didn't like Hillary Clinton You know, on Election Day, Trump had a 60 percent negative rating, but Hillary had a 55 percent negative rating. And 
the people who are negative on both voted about five to three for Trump. So I think that's a piece of it. But he never got a majority of the vote. So this is not necessarily where a majority of the country is. I think it's not. And I think it's even less so now. Secondly, I think we just have to face the fact that a lot of Republicans and conservatives voted for Trump because he was the Republican nominee and a conservative who would appoint judges conservatives wanted. And they voted for Trump for the same reason they had voted for Mitt Romney or George W. Bush. But then there are two groups that Trump particularly mobilized. One is the dark side of our country that there has been, you know, we have a history of racism, xenophobia, reaction. Most of the time, this was a minority or or we overcame this. We had to fight against it. The civil rights movement was a great example of fighting to overcome this side of us. And so he clearly appeals to that. But then there are the people who were really hurting. I mean, Donald Trump did better in counties where jobs were threatened by technological change and trade. He did better in counties where there were high levels of foreclosure. I think those are the kinds of voters that Democrats, progressives and moderates need to pay attention to. Yes. And if you look at why Democrats won in 2018, they got 25 million more votes in House races in 2018 than they did in 2014. That's an astounding number. And it's because they did two things at the same time. They really mobilized their base among African-Americans, young people, progressives, Latinos. But they also won back 10 to 15 percent of the old Trump voters. That's how Democrats won the governorship Mm. and Senate seats in Pennsylvania, in Michigan and in Wisconsin. And that means taking seriously the real concerns of people who have been hammered by economic change, who thought they made a deal with the economy and the deal got busted. And that's where I think we can't just treat the Trump voter as one big blob and people who will never change their minds. The evidence is that at least 10, 15, 20 percent of Trump voters are open to changing their minds. And I think those of us on the other side of politics should be trying to do that without abandoning any principle we hold. We don't have to. Well, that just gave me all sorts of hope. Thank you. (laughs) It's hard because I don't know if I've ever seen the Democratic Party as divided as it is right now. Again, it's reminiscent of when the Tea Party nearly broke the GOP. So I guess my question is, what do you see happening inside the party now and what is causing it? I guess I am a bit more optimistic about the state of the party at the moment. Yes, there is a lot of turmoil. You particularly see it on Twitter and you see it in some other places. There is in social media a sense that the left is ascendant in Democratic Party ranks and they clearly have moved to somewhat in that direction. Public opinion polls say more Democrats want to see a more center left and moderate uh, position. Much of the analysis from last week's Democratic debate focused on who won or lost or had the best or worst moments. But our special correspondent Jeff Greenfield says the debate also revealed a significant division among the candidates. The fact of the matter is, in the 2018 elections, I go back to that because I think they're really a guide to going forward. You had very progressive candidates like AOC or Ayanna Presley win races because they won Democratic primaries and Democratic districts representing the strongly progressive or left wing of the party. But you also had a lot of progressives supporting moderate candidates 
like Abigail Spanberger, and I tell the stories yeah. in my book, like Mikey Sherrill in New Jersey, like Chrissy Houlihan in Pennsylvania, a whole lot of people, a lot of them women, by the way, where progressives said, okay, I may be more progressive than this Democrat, but it is so important to check and hold back Trumpism. And I also know that these moderates may not agree with me, the progressive would say, on single-payer health care, but they sure do want to get health care to every single American, good health care in an affordable way. And so I look at the polls, and yes, there are some Bernie supporters who are very outspoken and very critical of more moderate Democrats. But the polls suggest that about 80 percent of Bernie folks are at least already to vote for Biden. I think the numbers are probably even higher for supporters of Elizabeth Warren. And I think you've seen some movement together. Joe Biden, for example, went out of his way to say, look, I'm not for Medicare for all, but I think we should lower the Medicare age, which I think was always a good idea because once you get to be 55 or 60, it gets harder and harder to buy health insurance. And if you look at the behavior of Sanders himself, if you look at what Elizabeth Warren is saying, if you look at what AOC has been saying, there is a sense that there may be disagreements in the party. People may beat each other over the head at times. But I think there's an understanding that reelecting Trump would be a catastrophe And I think that sense will only grow as the year uh, continues. Oh, I hope so. I mean, historically, how unusual is it to have a major political party divided like we are right now? This is John Chancellor on the floor. I'm looking down at Edwin Newman in the middle of a huge bunch of security people. There were protesters there who were being hit by police in the streets. That was part of what the the violence was about. I think 1980 is the more interesting parallel in the Democratic Party. You had Ted Kennedy, who had lost to Jimmy Carter. Carter had the delegates. He was going to the nomination. It was locked up. But Kennedy kept fighting anyway. He had a meeting with Carter and said, let's have one last debate. I congratulate President Carter on his victory here. I am, I am confident that the Democratic Party will reunite on the basis of democratic principles and that together we will march towards a democratic victory in 1980. Well, we've always had somewhat divided political parties because it's the nature of the two-party system, that in multi-party systems where you've like vote proportionally, people can go into their own piece of the electorate. So there is a sort of a socialist party, and there is a moderate or social democratic party, a center party, a Christian democratic party, a far-right party. People can associate with a very particular party. In a two-party system, these parties are always big, sprawling coalitions. Heck, the New Deal coalition included African-Americans in the North and segregationist whites in the South. You couldn't have had a more diverse coalition than that. So I think within our two-party system, there are always tensions. And what I argue in my book is that the The Democratic argument is particularly difficult these days because a lot of people who would have been middle of the road Republicans have nowhere to go in the Republican Party anymore. So they are in the Democratic Party. So a lot of the debates that used to happen between Democrats and a more reasonable Republican Party are now all happening inside a Democratic Party that is a bigger tent than ever, that there's a bigger progressive wing because young people are the most progressive generation 
in our country's history. But there's also a very big moderate wing because particularly in the suburbs, particularly among suburban women, people who could comfortably vote for a moderate or a liberal Republican like Connie Morella in my own home district in Maryland, for example, or people like Ed Brooke in Massachusetts, those candidates aren't there anymore. So they are Democrats. So yes, it is a big party. It will have a lot of arguments. But again, I think the one unifying force that was more powerful than any of these divisions is and will be Trump. I just wish that it was a more fluid conversation. You know, like in 2016, I endorsed Bernie Sanders and I did it early. In 2020, I endorsed Joe Biden. My politics hasn't changed, right? But the landscape in which they exist has totally changed. So I identify as a progressive. I believe in progressive policy. I still believe in progressive policy, but I'm able to look at the landscape of what's happening right now and know that far left may be just as dangerous, if not more dangerous, as far right, as far as the calcified and fortified way that we are so stuck in our ways right now. And I just... I wonder if the labels moderate and progressive really reflect camps in the party, or is it just like that we have an allegiance to one candidate over another? I just want to say out front that, and I sort of talk about this in the introduction to Code Red, is that no labels are perfect. And there are people who might be labeled one way who actually aren't fairly labeled that way. I use them as broadly accurate descriptions of two large groups of people who generally find themselves voting for Democrats or in the rare case you can do it for more moderate Republicans like Charlie Baker up in Massachusetts. But these folks are broadly on the same side. I agree with you very much that there is a ferocity in the debate within the broad center left that I think is often counterproductive. In the book, I quote my favorite theologian, who is Reinhold Niebuhr, that great progressive Christian. And he once said that we should look for the truth in our opponent's error and the error in our own truth. And boy, do we not have many conversations like that anymore. I also love the idea that put forward by a historian called Christopher Lash, who said that in real argument, you have to enter imaginatively into the ideas of your opponent initially to try to refute them. But in the process, you put your own ideas at risk. We don't have arguments like that now. I'm hoping that we could get to a politics that is, I like your term, fluid, because I think that's exactly right. You know, what is the difference between advocates of Medicare for all and advocates of universal coverage through a public option. Yes, there are differences in the speed to which you get there. Yes, the advocates of the public option will leave some private market for insurance. But if you get to universal coverage, you are achieving a goal that both sides share. And that creates the room for further arguments down the road about how we improve the system. And we may well move more toward um, a Medicare for all system down the road. I'd like people to see change as incremental. You can be for incremental change, but quite thoroughgoing change. The last point I want to make, I have a term in the book that I love, which no one will carry a banner for, 
but it comes from the late Democratic Socialist Michael Harrington. He endorsed something he called visionary gradualism. The left is right, is correct, that if you are not willing to support some of the quite fundamental changes our society needs to function better, you're on the wrong path. But I think the moderates are correct that you often get to those big changes, not in one big leap, but in steps. We took steps to get to universal social security. There were two weaker civil rights bills that passed in the 50s before we got the strong Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act of the 60s. And that's where I think we can find common ground across these wings, because we want to restore in the country is progress. And I think whether you are in the camp I call moderate or the camp I might call progressive, you both want progress. You do not want the reaction that the other side is selling us. And I have a question for you. I mean, do you think that all of the divide that we see on social media, do you think that it's authentic? We hear a lot about foreign troll farms and even people from the opposition sort of stirring the waters and making things worse. But how authentic do you think that divide is? Authentic is a hard word. That's an interesting word because I think that a lot of people on social media authentically believe what they say. I also think there are bots out there who are stirring the pot. We saw that with the Russian intervention in the election, and we have to keep an eye out for that. I think sometimes we get too stuck to our own brands. And I, and I say this to, about everybody, including myself, that we all, if you think too hard about what you're supposed to say, as opposed to try to think things through, I think there's something about social media that may encourage us to think more about what we're supposed to say than what we actually believe. And then I think social media tends to draw people who are more firmly committed to the right or the left than people in the middle. There's, there are a lot of surveys that suggest that, particularly Twitter, even more than Facebook. Facebook is more complicated. So I think that the arguments on Twitter are particularly ferocious. I mean, one of the things that you talk about in the book that I think is so smart is this idea of Democrats advancing the idea of inclusive patriotism. And I can't stand that the right has basically just co-opted the language and imagery of patriotism. But it's a very narrow brand of patriotism, right? So what is your vision of inclusive patriotism? Thank you for that, by the way. I think that when you look at what Trump is selling, Trump is selling nationalism, usually of a white ethno-nationalist variety. And he's really defining us. You see it in some of the far right, almost neo-Nazi demonstrations, repeating that old Nazi slogan, blood and soil. You know, the genius of American patriotism at its best has always been that we're an ideas country. We're the country of the Declaration of Independence. All men, now we would say all people are created equal in the Constitution of the United States, which, by the way, I always say the most powerful word in the Constitution is the first word, which is we. Yeah. And that we don't say we enough as a country anymore. And I think an inclusive patriotism is about extending that we to include everybody. And we have struggled with that as a nation. We started out as a nation where slavery existed initially in a lot of states, then in the South, and it took a civil war 
to get rid of it, to include African-Americans as part of that. We And even then, it took another 100 years to extend something closer to full rights to African-Americans. Women didn't get the right to vote until the 19th Amendment and so on. But the vision of inclusive patriotism is that we are a country committed to certain propositions that have to do with liberty and equality and community and governing and self-government. And that the United States is not the only country in the world that's a Republican democracy, but we have always tried to be the model for that system, again, at our best. We had a lot of struggles to get there of that system to the rest of the world. We should take real pride in that, but it should be about including everybody. My people originally came over the border from Quebec. Other people came from Europe. Some people have come, many people have come over our southern border. When they're here, when we're here, We are as American, one from the other, as people who came over here on the Mayflower. And that's always been the American idea. FDR gave a famous speech, which is summarized as his fellow immigrants speech. He said he actually said it in a more complicated way than that, but it was always translated as fellow immigrants, which he said to the daughters of the American Revolution, who weren't really crazy about all the ethnic groups that had come into the country before But we should be proud of our success in bringing so many different kinds of people from all over the world together in one democracy. And we should take pride in that and we should set that up against the kind of division that Donald Trump is selling. Well, I think we're unstoppable if we can get moderates and progressives to unite around a shared platform. If we can get them to do that, what do you think changes? Well, I think a lot of things could change, especially if the Democrats take the Senate, which I think is very possible now in a way people didn't see even a few months ago. I think that the coronavirus crisis has brought into relief some of the problems that existed before the crisis, but we see it so clearly now. Economic inequality is an important idea but it doesn't have the same power in our imaginations as unequal sacrifice. And what Mm. we are seeing in this pandemic is that a lot of people, myself included, can continue to make our livings because, you know, we can work online, we can work from home. That's a privilege of people who are very fortunate in our country. That's not a privilege that people of lower incomes have. It's not a privilege that most African-Americans have. We can see that essential workers out there are people who are often essential and underpaid and underappreciated at the same time. We can see that our failure to provide health insurance to everybody, whether they have a job or not, is a real problem in the pandemic. But it's a real problem when we don't have a pandemic. And so I am hoping that great crises can produce times of deep division and people can turn in on themselves, or they can produce periods of great solidarity where people realize we are in this together and we have to make ourselves a better country if we're going to thrive. And I am hoping that if Trump is defeated and Democrats have the power to change some things, they can act in areas like healthcare and education and climate and in creating just a sense of opportunity that people in the inner cities and in some of those Trump places, Trump counties that have been overlooked by the economy, there's got to be a way to talk to both of those communities because they are both seeking opportunities that they don't have right now. There's been such a powerful and beautiful shift of appreciation 
And we went from, I think, a, and maybe this is just me being idealistic, but I feel like we went from a country that appreciated things like celebrityism or what people are wearing, what cars they're driving, you know, appreciating royalty to this real shift of appreciating doctors and nurses and teachers. And my hope is that we can somehow harness that appreciation that we have right now to better the country with policy that does not hurt those that we now appreciate and actually helps those that we now appreciate and also those that we've forgotten. Amen to that. I think that's so true. And I I think in the book, I talk about this, that one of the most powerful things the New Deal did was not simply pass a lot of laws that made us a more just country. And that was very important from Social Security to the Wagner Act empowering labor unions. It actually changed people's sense of who is at the center of the American story, that the working class became a central part of the American story. There was a whole, you could see it in movies, you could see it in literature, where working people were treated not as somehow those doing the work for the rich. They were seen as doing the work of the country. The idea was that this country is built from the bottom by working people. And I pray that you're right about this because You know, I do think we have obviously paid a lot more attention, as we should, to all the people in the health professions, from the nurses and the doctors to all the other people who work in the hospitals at the risk of their lives. There's been a ritual that started almost every evening now in New York City. At 7 p.m., New Yorkers go out on the streets from their windows and they cheer for health care workers. One of my favorite parts of the day. Everybody comes out and cheers for us at seven o'clock, and it's just amazing. Uh, I wish they did this every day uh, during normal times. How long has it been since we talked about packing house workers? Without them, we don't have meat on our table for those out there who eat meat. How long has it been since we talked about the people who work in supermarkets who are not well-paid people? who are actually essential to our lives. Think about the people maintaining the electricity lines and the communication lines that are allowing us to talk today. So, yeah, I really hope you're right about that because we need a new national imagination about who makes this country tick and who makes this country work every day. And speaking of ticking, I mean, we are kind of on a tight schedule as far as when the election happens. It's going to be in November. It's right around the corner. If we can get moderates and progressives to unite, first of all, do you think we can do it that quickly? It's five months away. While I see you know, the arguments out there and I see what people who still have some strong feelings left over from the primaries and for that matter, from five years of arguments within the Democratic Party, some of that's still there. But again, I am struck by polls that have shown that already about 80 percent of Bernie Sanders supporters in the primaries say, yeah, they'll vote for Biden. They would have preferred someone else. And the same with Elizabeth Warren. And I think every time Donald Trump speaks, every time he tells a lie, every time he says something outlandish, like use disinfectant through injection to heal the virus, every time he does that, 
I think another group of people who may have been reluctant to vote for Joe Biden look and say, we just cannot afford this anymore. And that's why I'm so proud to endorse Joe Biden for president. And that's why I'm proud to endorse Joe Biden as president. And I am with great enthusiasm going to endorse Joe Biden. We are now early in the morning. Uh, that I was officially endorsing Joe Biden. So today I am asking all Americans, I'm asking every Democrat, I'm asking every Independent, I'm asking a lot of Republicans to come together in this campaign to support your candidacy, which I endorse, to make certain that we defeat somebody who I believe, and I'm speaking just for myself now, uh, is the most dangerous president in the modern history of this country. Fortunately for the Democrats, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden have a good personal relationship. And I think you see Biden reaching out to the Sanders supporters with substantive ideas. And I think you see Elizabeth Warren and Biden allying on a number of ideas as well. So I warn everybody, I am a glass one-tenth full person. I am kind of chronically hopeful And sometimes I'm wrong about that. But I think analytically, looking at the numbers, looking at what's happening, I think that it will really take an affirmative effort on the parts of moderate and progressives to blow this election, to lose it. They have done it before. I think with Trump in the White House, they might resist that temptation this time. Well, let's assume that Joe Biden wins the presidency. I mean, what do you think the post-Trump world looks like? I mean, I I can't even imagine why anyone would want to be a president right now, trying to recover the country's health, the economy, our infrastructure, recovering just our international standing. How do we start? Where do we start? Your sense of burden is correct, I think. You know, this will really be the second time since 2008, if Biden wins, that a Democratic president has had to come in and clean up an enormous mess. Barack Obama taking over just as the Great Recession was hitting full speed with unemployment just rising at extraordinary rates. If Biden wins, he is going to take over a country where we still might not have beaten the virus yet, even if we make significant progress where the economy will not be back to anything close to where we want it to be. There are a lot of projections that suggest unemployment might still be at 10 or 15 percent when he takes over. So there is an enormous amount of pure restorative work that will have to be done. And unfortunately, you can count on the Republican Party, which was happy to vote for enormous, uh, both a budget busting tax cut And then this spending under Trump will suddenly discover they are fiscal conservatives. So I'm not expecting a lot of help from the Republicans. You're going to have to clean up that mess and keep some big promises on healthcare, education, climate and in other areas. So it's going to be an enormous challenge. The hope is that solving the problems and keeping your promises may go hand in hand to clean up our country's health situation. You really are going to have to make it possible for everyone to see a doctor or a physician's assistant when they're sick and get the health care they need. To make the economy work again, you're going to have to help people out of work find either the forms of education or job training that they need to move into new sectors, because unfortunately, some sectors like retail are going to take an enormous hit 
in this economy. And on climate, we just have had a lesson on what can happen to us when we don't pay attention to a big issue that everybody said, oh, you don't have to worry about. We weren't paying attention to pandemics and look what happened. I think we should take a look at climate and say, my God, this is a real problem. And we don't want to look back the way we did this time and say, gee, I wish we worried about that earlier. So I think the challenge ultimately will be to turn the path of reconstruction into a path of social reconstruction at the same time, that the changes we need to put the economy back on a decent track are also the changes we need to make the economy more just and more inclusive. So if you're trying to unite the party, who would you pick as Biden's running mate? I hate to punt on questions. I never like to punt on questions, but I am honestly very confused on that question. I haven't made a judgment yet. I look at the list of potentials and I see some real advantages to each of them, but no one is sort of, to me, so overwhelming that they knock anyone else out. If Biden wants to pursue a moderate, middle-of-the-road Midwestern strategy, Klobuchar makes sense. If you think that your main task is to pull in progressives and also to have a very smart governing partner. Lord knows I have a plan for that was a real slogan. You pick Elizabeth Warren. If you want someone who can move the electorate, who is a really powerful campaigner, you pick Kamala Harris. And I am not sure. I am no more certain than I think an awful lot of Democrats, including Joe Biden himself, are just to pick those. I could also mention Gretchen Whitmer, Stacey Abrams. No one yet for me has jumped out as this is the obvious person. I have had that sense in the past of who might be the obvious person. I actually thought Joe Biden was the obvious person for Barack Obama because he filled in certain gaps, both in experience and with the constituencies he brought in. I myself am honestly confused about that. You have more clarity than I have on that question. (laughs) Which means very little because I have no clarity on that question. So, you know, there's just a lot to be heartbroken about right now. And I think people are overwhelmed. So finally, I'd just like you to tell us what gives you hope. Is there hope? Are we going to be okay? Yeah, I mean, you know, I always love that Churchill line that people use a lot. And for good reason, he said, Americans always do the right thing after they have first exhausted all of the other possibilities. And so I guess one of the things I like best about America that feeds my sense of patriotism is not a belief that Americans always do things right in the first place, not a belief that America has always been a just country, but a belief that Americans have an extraordinary capacity for self-correction and that we've been on a wrong path and moved ourselves to the right path. We have had enormous problems, the Great Depression being a good example, where we finally found our way back to prosperity and a greater sense of justice. And I see out there a particular hope in the younger generation. I dedicate my book to the rising generation and to all in the older generation willing to lend them a hand. One of my very favorite Robert Kennedy quotes where he said, this world demands the qualities of youth, not a time of life, but a state of mind, a temper of the will, a quality of the imagination a predominance of courage over timidity, of the appetite for adventure over the life of ease. 
I look at young people right now, and they are the most progressive generation in our country. They are the least bigoted generation in our country. They're the most diverse generation in our history. And I always tell my kids, I'm not worried for the long term of America, because when your generation takes over and mine dies off, we're going to be okay. And the only problem with that is I want to live long enough to see it happen, Mm -hmm. uh, because I have a lot of confidence in the generation coming up. And I think they're going to change us for the better. Mm, I love that. I hope so. It's what I'll be praying for. EJ, thank you so much. To my listeners, the book is Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. Thanks for being a part of the podcast, EJ. Now, Joe will be a better candidate for having run the gauntlet of primaries and caucuses alongside one of the most impressive Democratic fields ever. Each of our candidates were talented and decent with a track record of accomplishment, smart ideas, and serious visions for the future. And that's certainly true of the candidate who made it farther than any other, Bernie Sanders. Bernie's an American original, a man who has devoted his life to giving voice to working people's hopes, dreams, and frustrations. He and I haven't always agreed on everything, but we've always shared a conviction have to make America a fairer, more just, more equitable society. We both know that nothing is more powerful than millions of voices calling for change. And the ideas he's championed, the energy and enthusiasm he inspired, especially in young people, will be critical in moving America in a direction of progress and hope. Because for the second time in 12 years, we'll have the incredible task of rebuilding our economy. And to meet the moment, the Democratic Party will have to be bold. For those of us who spend much of our lives taking deep dives in social media, it can be very difficult to remember that Twitter is not reflective of most of our nation. So much good comes from the community social media sites bring, but they also drive us into our chimneys, creating seemingly great divides where in reality, our differences on the left are pretty small. It's time to break out of those chimneys. Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders have put together a series of unity task forces, collections of subject matter experts and political movers and shakers from all corners of the party working together to make sure we have bold leadership, new ideas, and the ability to see those ideas realized in a new administration. It's such a hopeful vision, and their strong leadership will serve our party and our country well. Because remember, we are all on the same team. I hope we can follow Joe and Bernie's example and come together for our nation. Because together... We're unstoppable. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word.